after remorse, the impossibility of repair. The annual Senator George J. Mitchell Peace Lecture 2020, Part 2. Professor Pumla Gobodo Madikizela in conversation with William Crawley. Pumla, thank you so much. That was that was really uh, fantastic. Unfortunately, I've got about 15 pages now of, of questions for our conversations. I find that fascinating. Uh, but we have 20, 30 minutes, I think. Um, you have taken us on an extraordinary journey here, really, uh, starting with the slow disintegration of peace and reconciliation in South Africa, trying to make sense of that, beginning there with the TRC, then taking on this psychological journey through trauma, the trauma of perpetrators and analysis of remorse, taking that and linking it to community and, and finally coming back to the TRC with what strikes me as a remarkable critique, because what you have done by the end of, of your analysis is to pitch to us a kind of ethic of empathy in reparative humanism, as you describe it. Uh, and so I want to kind of go back to the TRC with you through the lens you brought us to and, and just see how far you want to make that critique further. Uh, many people criticised Desmond Tutu at the time and subsequently for spiritualising that tribunal experience. And, and you've also shown us the theatrical dimensions of that tribunal experience. Uh, and it's as if what you're saying by the end of this lecture is I, I fully agree with that, actually. Uh, the, the spiritualization that we saw televised by Max Dupre and others famously uh, um, across the tribunal um, was, was part of a journey of a kind of religious or spiritual journey of reconciliation. And that was the wrong path to be on. We should be on a different path, a path towards restoration and repair. Does that does that capture it? It does not. Let me tell you what I, I how I'd like to respond to the point that you're making. Yes, there was this criticism, but I think it was misplaced for the following reason. You know, the religious, those songs that were sung at the Truth Commission, you know, for instance, I referenced the song, one of the songs that was sung um, uh, uh, to open the Truth and Reconciliation Commission, Lisa Lissitingalako. Every black South African, at least from my generation, knows that song. Mm. They will sing that song anywhere. What is important for me about this issue is that these, that religion, what was criticized as a religious injunction was actually a, a ritualistic way of holding the space for, 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 the, for victims, for people that suffered. This, this criticism didn't come from people who were the audience. It came from scholars, from academics and so on. The people who were there themselves, they took this for granted, mm -hmm. you know, that this is what happens when you are dealing with these more harrowing moments. You open with a prayer. You open with a, a, a song that is significant, the power of the song and the power of the words. I mean, the words, for instance, of this song, Lisa Lissitingalako, fulfill your promise, Lord. It's almost like a it's almost like a, a national anthem. In fact, it was composed by Tio Soga, who himself 
was is known to have been involved in the formation of the TRC uh, of the African National Congress in in the 18, early 1900s. So that song was like an anthem, and so it's it's sacred for Black people. Prayer, even for people you know who are not necessarily Christians. There is no for them. It's not about not being a Christian. It's about this is a ritual. Mm. An observance of a moment that is sacred. And in order to do that, we call upon what we understand. We, we know best how to do this. And so the, the, that's, that's not what I mean. I, I am, in fact, I think that the criticism about that particular issue was highly, highly misplaced. I mean, the candles, the Archbishop would like candles in memory of, of people who have died, we would mm. stand and recognize in the moment of silence. All of that was important mm. and is part of the symbolism of the Truth and Reconciliation Commission. And the critique is very misplaced. What about the um, the focalization of forgiveness that was encouraged? Yeah, okay. That, that even I am reviewing. I, well, let me say the following. The importance of forgiveness at that particular moment was that it opened up a kind of conversation about what's possible, right? Mm. Now, we know historically with these kinds of crimes that, you know, for instance, with the, with the, um, uh, uh, with the Holocaust, mm. the language of forgiveness was almost, you know, forbidden. Mm-hmm. In fact, you know, the scholars actually, there was like a, you know, thou shalt not forgive. Uh, the way that the, the, the scholarship around forgiveness was pursued, it was a kind of, uh, of a scholarship that was about prescribing what you ought to do. You ought not forgive, you know, these kinds of crimes. There was kind of a, an oughtness about it. What we found with the Truth and Reconciliation is that actually you can't put a limit to how people, the relationships and the connectedness between people happens. You can't, you can't control that. Mm-hmm. And so that language was important just to show us that it's possible for people to actually come together. Now, the language of forgiveness itself, and, and, and this is what I'm, I'm, I'm exploring in my work, mm-hmm. the language of forgiveness. Um, is a, is is actually not accurate. Doesn't accurately capture what happens. Even when people say I forgive, in my view, it's much more than yeah. I forgive. The much more that I'm referring to, it has to do with just people being able to, you know, remember that splitting apartheid was the was the splitting of the mind. You know, it wasn't not not just about you know. I can mix with a white person. It was actually in the mind, whiteness and blackness are separate in the mind. And so what the Truth and Reconciliation Commission did, and with through these acts of forgiving, it made possible the potential for people to mm. connect. I look at forgiveness as really a process of connection with one's former enemy. There is, of course, the question of, well, was this where people forced and so on. I, I wouldn't say forced. I think that there is a, le- a level at which because the environment, the context mm-hmm. 
is a context where we are now talking about reconciliation. And in this context, you know, we sort of, ex there's an expectation. Yes. So, 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 so Pondo, yeah, you, in a you, way, you've met, you've met people who will have, uh, and they've been interviewed, we've seen interviews with people who say, I didn't feel ready to use the language of forgiveness. Yeah. I felt coerced mm, in this situation. Yeah. I felt spiritually coerced to mm. move to that point when I wasn't ready to be there. So that's what I mean about kind of overly spiritualizing uh, the experience of people moving through trauma. But you also mentioned amnesty, and that's the context around all of this, which gives a kind of transactional nature or character to the TRC. Um, and you invited me to ask you some some questions about that, because this is something we talk about a lot, as you can imagine, in, in Northern Ireland um, and the potential injustices connected to amnesty. After all these years, what are your thoughts on on the amnesty process as it worked out in South Africa? You know, William, it's it's very, you know, in, so what we what I have found, what I have come to accept is that none of these processes are perfect or can mm. be perfect. That we've got to hold the ambivalence. That, that we've got to recognize that there was a need for this kind of thing. For whatever it was, for what it was worth. There was a need for this process because it allowed a certain kind of conversation to take place. At the same time, the way that this amnesty, the amnesty was granted sometimes, seemed arbitrary and mm. as a result you know it's undervalued yeah you know the suffering of victims and and so there are those 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 challenges with the problem you know that the fact that the amnesty process required perpetrators to give full disclosure it allowed perpetrators for instance the story i shared at the end where nivold blatantly lied lied you know to the commission not only did he lie then after just before he was recalled to the commission because of other techni some technicalities before he went there he sought out the family and went to their home to ask their forgiveness and reiterated the lie that he told to the truth and reconciliation commission all the time knowing that he was lying so there is, you know, there, there is a challenge with this process, but I wouldn't say that one should throw the baby out of the bathwater. I think that we recognize the limitation and perhaps a, a greater rigor in, a, you know, in terms of investigations of, you know, the veracity of what perpetrators told the Truth Commission. There, there was there was a, a, an investigating arm, you know, mm -hmm. of the Truth Commission, but evidently, you know, it, it was limited. Remember also that a huge number of documents were were, were thrown out, were destroyed just before the commission. In fact, even long after the Truth Commission. Mm. So my answer to the question is. The, the, the complexity of the moment and its historical significance should allow us, should enable us to, to hold the ambivalence that, you know, and, and, and be able to accept that this is what it was for, for the purposes that it served at the time. But of course, one another point that you are alluding to is the question whether 
these processes can be universalized? And the answer, of course, is no. You know, that, that we, we learn, we draw from them what is important to learn, what mm. insights are important, but they cannot be replicated, you know, as they are because they may not, you know, they're not, they may not necessarily be appropriate. But the notion that, you know, you you give a little, you give something a little bit to perpetrators in order to get some truth, even if it's not the the whole mm. truth as we know it happened, but that something happens. You know, these truths were exposed, and these farms that uh, were owned by these people in in Pretoria, in the outskirts of Port Elizabeth, where the graves I have not all been dug out. Yeah. The process still remains. I mean, all those people whose bodies have not been found, they are hidden in these graves. In fact, mm. some of these graves were that were identified. They would be they would be identified, and perpetrators would say, "Oh, the three people were, are buried in such and such a grave." They go to exhume the grave. They find twelve more people in mm. the same grave. It's impossible to know who are they because all you know that the uh, uh, the investigators that are assuming these graves, they are looking for the particular, they've got the DNA for these three people. So yeah. who are the 12 others? So you can imagine, this is what I mean by all of this, you wake up and you're driving and there are all these graves, or you encounter these perpetrators who killed and murdered and maimed in such violent ways, and we live with them as neighbors, you know, we meet them in supermarket. I mean, some of the children of victims have told stories of encountering perpetrators at supermarkets. One young man who became a, a, a traffic officer encountered the son of Gideon Nivold, you know, stopped a, a, a driver, mm -hmm. and he saw the name Nivold. He says, do you know this the Gideon Nivold? And he turned out was his father. So... How do you heal when there are all these yeah. reality, these things that, you know, these unfinished stories that are still out there? That, that can be the danger of amnesty because it can start off as, you know, a, a well-intentioned storytelling process and can end up as a negotiation in terms of kind of paying a necessary price to get across that bridge and to get Absolutely. what you want out of it. Can exactly. I ask you as a psychologist about, I'm glad you brought up The Act of Killing. It's a remarkable film, absolutely extraordinary film, a very unsettling film, about the power, the importance of, of this kind of sort of theatrical reenactment. I mean, I know there's a place for drama in therapy and in trauma therapy, but not normally while television cameras are there in a, in a tribunal. Uh, how, do you, how do you process that as a psychologist? Now, I don't know whether to respond to the question of the uh, uh, act of killing or to the notion of using film. Um, I have very strong views about the act of killing. Uh, I have very strong views. And um, if I could men mention one of them, you know, I mean, the way that the film is, is, is done, it, it's really, it shows just the, 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 how deep the denial in that country is. Yeah. Just even, even that the, the, the scenes in that film were mm -hmm. possible, you know, right in the communities mm -hmm. where people were hurt and wounded and the way that it's done, you know, 
it, it, I, I find it, you know, there's something about it for me that's, that's just a grating. I mean, I, I cringe from that kind of thing. I mean, yeah. and when I think, would you do that? For instance, in Germany, you go to a, a, a yeah. town where Jewish people were exterminated yeah. and, and, and do a film of that, invite the perpetrators and ask them to enact. You wouldn't do that. So why was it done? Why was this possible in the and way? I'm sorry to interrupt, but also to see in some cases the perpetrators enjoying exactly. the reenactment because they knew there were no consequences to it. And thinking back, for example, at one scene I cannot get out of my head of one of these perpetrators talking about the rape of a child and talking about it as the good old days. Yeah. And there were no consequences because uh, the transaction had been done in terms of the amnesty. That's the extent of the of the denial. In fact, it's interesting because what what can, memory is a, is a strange thing. What what popped up in my memory is how today, with corruption and the violence of corruption, how it has been normalized. That is mm. almost like you know the people who are known to have committed these acts of corruption. They come and go. I mean, the son of yeah. Jacob comes and he's cheered, and people surround him. There's excitement. There's no sense that. You know, of shame. You know, there's no sense that this is something shameful, and mm -hmm. and so the these uh, but, but film. But but then back to the to your question, the the power of film. If you could uh, uh, the slide, the last slide, please. If you could show that last slide in slide number seven, the power of film can be very healing. There is um, were we able to get to the last slide just to show people the last slide on my slides? Is this possible? So anyway, what what there the is that slide shows how a perpetrator go. It's a film called Black Christmas, and it's about a perpetrator who goes back to the community uh, to seek forgiveness, and it doesn't end there. He 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 is today involved. This is Stefan Kutier. Stefan Scoutier and, and one of the victims, these people from, from Worcester, where he planted a bomb and it killed several people. And they, they decided to, uh, to, to go to prison to take, to take a train. You know, the, a train was hired for them to go to meet Stefan because the prison wouldn't release him to the community. And so that scene you see there is after... He had made a speech, a heartfelt speech about, you know, apologizing for his deeds. And uh, then when he was released on parole, he went back to the community. So you can see the importance of this film, because when we showed the film, Mark Kaplan, did the, who does a lot of these films, um, or human rights related films, really, as, as, a, as a person himself, who is pursuing truth through the lens. I mean, this is a thing very important that these people do, and I know also uh, um, at the Mitchell Institute, some of the colleagues do use film a lot uh, to pursue truth, but also to expose truth, but to, to also present it, represent the truth in communities so that you can create language to talk about what happened through the medium of something creative like that. And you create new conversations. For instance, we are able to show the film to audiences, different audiences. And we've had different responses, some not welcoming, some angry because it focuses on the perpetrator, but some 
people feeling a sense of um, being acknowledged because of the the depth of of the uh, 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 of, of the of truth, truthfulness with which this young man is relating to what mm. he did in the past, and so it's it's healing even for people who were not necessarily at that scene to meet this man. People were affected. Remember these crimes may be narratives told by individuals, but as they're telling the story, there are several people who are actually living, excuse me, living through their stories, listening to the stories, but re-experiencing. And so the moment for them is also a moment of telling of their own stories. And so vicariously, you know, the impact of that moment of being heard is also felt by those who are not necessarily on the stage. Pumla, can I ask you about the limits of repair? You've laid out in, in quite complex terms, actually, the dynamics of repair as you see the possibility of, of repair, which involves remorse and the community acceptance in some ways, going to that dark place with that perpetrator in order to embrace them. Difficult concept that, but to embrace them and, and to restore them. But isn't the reality also that there are some perpetrators who are beyond repair? There are, there are psychopaths, there are sociopaths, there are people who lack empathy, lack a sense of conscience, could not have a sense of conscience. And, and if they talk even about splitting in your psychoanalytic terms, they're faking it. Yeah, well, the, exactly. The, this, is, this is very important to know that not all perpetrators are redeemable. Some perpetrators are irredeemable. And, and we, we have to draw a distinction between those and, and the ones who have, as I said in my, in, in, my, in my talk earlier, those who have some vestiges of conscience, even as they're operating patients, their conscience is constantly challenging them. Mm. Now, we know also in the scholarship that, I mean, if, even if you think about Nazi Germany, that the majority of people who were although there were psychopaths to be sure, but the majority of people were like you and I, they were not necessarily, you know, uh, uh, um, uh, uh, you know, psychopaths. And this is, this is a finding that has been made within the scholarship that uh, the majority of people who commit these crimes are ordinary people, they're not perpetrators, but that you do find, and especially this kind of thing, it attracts those kinds of people. So you do find them as well. And so the question of, of course, there's always this question, is this genuine, you know, is this witness stand remorse? And, you, you know, William, sometimes, and I think I would say often, if one listens and listens deeply, you can see something that is being faked, you know, um, you can feel it, and especially for victims, you know, especially people who have been wounded. You can you can see that this is a a performance of remorse. There there is a it's it's on the surface, you know. There is no depth uh, uh, to it, and and we see it if moving beyond perpetrators, because really, you know, if you think about who are the people who kept these perpetrators going. They are the majority of the population that yeah. benefited from these crimes. Right. So we we also have to think about what are the strategies 
of, of people at, you know who benefited from these crimes what what strategies do they use mm. to try to escape accountability and, and what is the consequence what are the consequences of um of of their response to these crimes and this is what we are we are, we are facing because mm. perpetrators you can you know a thousand, two thousand, five, whatever the number is, um, but our neighbors are people yeah. who benefited from these crimes, and often they are the ones who struggle to to face that past because it's too ghastly for them to contemplate, mm-hmm. you know, uh, um, uh, the consequences of actually facing their accountability and they, that they benefited from it. And I get that because it's very difficult for a community, isn't it? Um, mm. To to it's easy to say you're primeval. It's easy to say you're a monster, you're a demon. It's mm. more difficult to say you came from us. Yeah. Let's talk about how that happened, and uh, we are part of you. And if we're going to move on as a society, that means we get restored, you get restored, we do that together. That's a very difficult thing, particularly. And I want to come to this actually for politicians and for policymakers. Um, because and we see this with the whole debate about prison reform and re- rehabilitation. It's a lot easier to say, lock them up, throw the keys away than it is to talk in these complex psychological terms. We often hear politicians in Northern Ireland saying of uh, perpetrators, if I can use that language, leave the stage, go away, pack up and go away. But what you're saying to us is if we want to have a truly healed future, we can't have perpetrators going away and leaving the stage. We need to find a new place for them in the family of our community. And to find a place in the family of our community, there has to be some act of recognition that they were not acting alone. I mean, in Mm. in the sense that there was a whole society behind them, even those who say lock them up, those who say, oh, these were, you know, just bad apples and so forth. I mean, just recently in South Africa, F.W.D. Clerk, said made a statement publicly to say that apartheid was not a crime against humanity and so i mean those kinds of statements reinforce the denial because then all the people who supported this and voted uh, you know the apartheid government in, in power they now have a reason to deny to say oh what matters actually now is the problem of corruption there's nothing to 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 uh, to confess or to be guilty about the past. We are now we have a problem with corruption, and and, and so it allows the denial to be perpetuated. And unfortunately, perpetrators are the ones who bear the brunt. You know, they're the ones who are left with this burning stick. And um, and, and then of course, because the the community around them is in denial, mm-hmm. it's either you know, putting the burden on them or helping them to deny. So we find, for instance, there are people here, there's a, a man called Dr. Death, whose role in the South African Defense Force was to ma- manufacture poison. I mean, mm. he, this was a mm. heart doctor, heart specialist. When this person was facing, you know, trial, there was a community of white people who said, oh, you know, he's a great heart specialist and so on. And all of these letters to the to the editors in newspapers and so on and so how just you know vouching for how great it is it to be to to suddenly strip him of his license to practice 
is denying them of the kind of professional help and blah, blah, blah. So, you know, so this is a problem, you know, when people who benefited from this pass don't themselves and people at the top do not actually take that first step to be yeah. the one to say something went wrong here. And I'm the first one to admit that something went wrong. Then that opens the door for all others, you know, to do so. Just one last, I know that sometimes there's one thing leads to the other. I want to say this last thing to illustrate as well. Cyril Ramaphosa, for instance, the president, current president of South Africa, this is actually a very important illustration. Mm. He admits, uh, he he apologizes to the nation because now all the stories of corruption, the extent, the breadth, the depth, the impossible, you know, abyss this man you know, descended into the yeah. old women who, who were caught up, descended into. Now we are discovering what it, it's all been about. So he makes a statement of apology and, and, and says the ANC is accountable because all of these people, the road leads back to the ANC yeah. to, of all of these crimes. Jacob Zuma, as of course we would ex expect, he, is, he writes a long letter um, addressed to the president, Sir Ramaphosa, and accuses him, accusing him of um, uh, compromising the position, uh, this is not his language, but of compromising the status and the standing uh, of, the, of, of, of the ANC, that he's the first ever president to find fault and in public accuse the, the ANC for being corrupt. No other president in the history of the ANC has ever done this. Now, that is big time, you know, high level denial, exactly the kind of denial we are criticizing FWD CLEC for. But now when it happens yeah. to the ANC, you know, within the ANC, we're supposed to turn a, 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 blind, a blind eye, you know, but... Um, mm. Yeah, but I mean, and of course, just to quote you, one thing leads to another. Yes. Um, polarization, deeply polarized societies fuel corruption, don't they? Because you don't need to worry about accountability. You can always just keep your side pointing the finger at the other side and there's less accountability. You can get on with your corruption. I like that very much. I like what you say, because this is exactly what is going on, because it's it's, you know, which crime is worse? Yeah. So it's a polarization instead of people thinking about how do we build, how do we, you know, how do we build build an ethical society, you know, and it starts with all of these at all levels. It doesn't matter which side of the of the past you are on, but the responsibility to be accountable for building, you know, an ethical morality within our our society, particularly in these societies that have a history of conflict. It's, it is so important for leaders to be upstanding. But, you know, unfortunately, it's just, it just has not happened like that. Just finally, these ideas on uh, the possibility of repair on transgenerational and historical trauma. You're working this up bit by bit to, to a full, full blast in print, uh, a, a new book. Um, how far are you into it? I, we just well, we are the, the two processes actually. One process is we're working with colleagues at the university within our research. Uh, now it's going to be a center on historical trauma and transformation. 
we uh, we we just did a book. In fact, the the Mitchell Institute is is implicated in that book because John is one part of the series that uh, uh, my dear friend and colleague John Brewer is is uh, is editing. So while we, we've done one book, we looked at other contexts, uh, transgenerational trauma in other contexts. Now we are one of our um, uh, senior researchers is leading the analysis of this process. And so that's going to be the, the project. What I'm working on is, is, a, is, is this issue of the, the, the reparative humanism. I'm looking at TRC testimonies to look into what did we miss my project at, at Harvard, uh, the fellowship that I, I have at Harvard, is looking at um, looking back at the Truth Commission uh, process right. to, to think about what is it that we missed. So it's almost like a different kind of temporality, you know, that sometimes trauma is about, you know, looking back trauma of the past. But what I'm trying to do, I'm trying to look at what was the foretelling you know, there was the moment of the Truth Commission where people mm -hmm. testified about the pain and how it comes from the past. But how did, as I was saying earlier, how did this extent of the violation that has happened in the country, mm. how does it point us to a future of trauma? So, mm. so looking at the violence today and trying to rethink the process of the Truth Commission and to, to look forward, so to speak. Now, you know, um, John Broad talks about remembering forward. So it's, it's an adaptation of that in a way. They kind of remember what thinking back in order to remember exactly, yeah, in the future. So, um, so it's those. It's, it's that's what I, that's what the, this project is about. And and I think I mean one of the things that I'm hoping for is that we use the Truth Commission. We don't use it enough. We use the commission as a site for for productive research, you know, mm. I, I think uh, the, the Institute, the Mitchell Institute and, and, and my colleague Hastings who's heading up the Institute is doing just that, you know, looking, focusing on what is happening in uh, uh, um, your, your country and, and the students working on issues related to what's going on there. We haven't done that quite in South Africa. So the hope is that we will be able to. This is why I'm really interested in staying connected with the with the Mitchell Institute in order to learn, in order for our students to learn mm. what their students are doing, so that they can also think about how their own context can be a site for research and for knowledge production. This is so important. Well, when you make it out of the archives, do come back to Belfast sometime, would you? Yeah, thank you. It'd be lovely <laughs> to see you again, Pumla. Thank you so much. It's been an absolute pleasure. Thank you so much. Thank you. For more in this series, subscribe to Queen's University Belfast's Shaping a Better World podcast on Spotify or Apple Podcasts.